Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Gary Chan. And we're going to talk about something, a topic that obviously is in the forefront of many people's mind, which is data protection and information security. So, Gary, uh, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tom. Can you give us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Well, I uh, graduated from MIT, electrical engineering, computer science, worked in information technology, doing consulting work, headed up the information and security department for a large cap company, done a bunch of stuff in security and anti-fraud, essentially, with a lot of different clients, whether ranging from commercial to government. So could you tell us what led you to found Alfizo? Well, I love innovation. So I read all the time about the latest tech and the latest processes, all that sort of stuff. And one of the things about working for a company is it kind of moves a little slower. (laughs) So what I wanted to do was essentially give it a try, right? Go out there on my own. I think I've had enough years of experience at this point to kind of know what the challenges are in industry, give me an opportunity to build some business skills, but most importantly, to have a little bit more autonomy in order to drive newer solutions and solve bigger challenges. Gary, you describe Alfizo as pragmatic information security. And I will have to tell you, I've never seen those three words together in a sentence, in a clause or anything else. So I really was intrigued by that. So why did you pick that phrase? Oh, yeah, because I think that's essentially my differentiator. When I first went out there, I tried doing information security consulting. You know, I found that that was not terribly successful. But the main reason isn't necessarily because information security people, when people buy information security, they're not usually looking for someone to go in and solve every problem. And that's what I was doing initially, right? I go in, I identify 100 different problems and then basically try to go solve all of it. But that's not really what the client wanted. Really what they want is they wanted to look at it from a business perspective, right? How does it help them bring in revenue? How does it protect only the things that they absolutely need to protect because it saves them more money? There are a lot of different elements. For example, some people would hire me because they wanted to look good for a promotion, right? And that's totally different than going in and trying to improve their security program. So I changed it from I do information security to do I do pragmatic information security, and I think that's a huge difference because now I go in and I say, hey, help me understand why you're doing this and dig into the details a lot deeper than let me just go find all of your problems and let me go solve them from a security perspective. So that's why I chose pragmatic information security. You know, that's really interesting because what I heard you describe is a risk-based approach. Let me see what my risks are. Let me understand what my highest risks are. Let me see how to manage those highest risks and let me overlay that with a business kind of analysis to see not only how am I going to protect myself, but how can this drive, you know, greater business efficiency and greater profitability? Would that be a fair assessment? I think it's a little different. I think the risk-based assessment is certainly something that a lot of companies say they want. But once I dug in and where I think I found the most success was really, really tying it much closer to business needs. Right. So I'll give you an example, right? So this one company wanted to improve their bottom line, right? So how do you bring in security to go improve your bottom line? Usually, you might be looking for something like cost savings. But instead, in this particular case, 
what we wanted to do was try to increase revenue. And so it was looking at their customer base, doing some sort of market analysis to figure out can we, to their existing customers, sell some sort of security, and they're not a security firm, where they could have some sort of recurring revenue? So it was really looking at what is the business issue that they're trying to solve. In this case, they're trying to make more profit and then using security concepts. So I'll uh, sort of give another example, right? So there were actually a few different companies that all happened to call me at the same time that were looking to want to improve their marketing. You know, what does security have to do with marketing? Uh, really superficially, very little. But if we look at how they're doing their marketing, in, th in these cases, they were sending lots of emails that were basically ending up in spam boxes of the recipients so the recipients would never see them. And so what I would be doing is using security skills to say, here's how we need to change the way that you send emails in order to get them past spam filters. And so really, it was a lot less of the risk-based analysis and really understanding what it is they want to solve and in some cases, the executives would have completely different expectations and beliefs around what the risks were than what I would say a more objective analysis might be. But it, that became how I would have to solve the problem is by through the lens of the executive rather than what I was doing before, before I called it pragmatic information security, which would be just going in and saying, no, actually, here's your actual problem. And that did not work nearly as well as what it does now. That's a really interesting approach. Do clients come to you with a problem or do they come to you because they're referred to you? And how do you sit down and help them think through your approach and the issues they're having? I think that it's mostly word of mouth at this point anyway. So I, I don't have a huge marketing budget or anything like that. But whenever, you know, get referred, usually what they say is, hey, Gary just helps you solve problems. He just happens to do it from a security perspective. So going into those conversations, that is their mindset is, well, I've got a problem, whatever that problem is, and would just basically sit down and ask very open-ended questions, try to understand what the issues are, and dig a lot deeper into exactly why they want to be doing certain things. What are they trying to achieve related to the company's strategic goals? And it's almost never a conversation around what is your information security posture? What controls do you have? Like that's normally much, much further down the line after they've already decided that they want to buy. And that's, I think, a very different approach than at least now what I'm doing versus what I was doing before when I first started Alfizo. One of the things in, I would say, the corporate world, particularly around governance, is the issue of data security and the board of directors. And I was wondering if you have conversations with boards of directors, are they understanding their obligations? under a data protection program, or are we still just kind of whistling in the wind with boards? I think it, the boards uh, definitely depends. So I've met with a lot of different boards, and I would say that usually the most sophisticated ones still have a very poor understanding. What they typically are concerned about is meeting compliance requirements and fines, like they're afraid of fines. And they also don't necessarily have a full understanding of what security can do for them aside from keeping them from getting hacked, right? So security can do a lot more than what boards generally are aware of. And they normally don't give enough time for education because during the board meetings, you have to cover a dozen different things. And so you only have five minutes. So of course, you only do the most important highlights, which then means that you're missing the 95% of the iceberg that's underneath. So I would say boards generally do not have the level of knowledge around security, cybersecurity 
threats and how security can help their business. And I think that's probably the most impactful thing that were to change, because then that would change the conversation as well and what they're actually interested in. Gary, in many other types of compliance outside yours, the highest risk corporations see in a breach of their compliance program is reputational damage, mm-hmm. whether that be paying a bribe and being accused of being a criminal, whether that be the same with money laundering or export control. Is reputational damage as big a risk as fines and penalties in your world as well? It is. And I think that's probably the thing that boards are most concerned about is uh, between that and fines from being non-compliant. I think those are two very, very important things that they care about a lot. So the more that you can tie things to that, the more likely they are going to want to do something about it. So for example, if you send a letter out to the wrong address and you have some private information, because that one sheet of paper got out, even if it was just the intern making a small mistake, that to the board is probably a much bigger deal than if you got breached on the back end and you had like a hundred things like fly out the door that nobody knew about right then and there. You know, aside from having reporting obligations, depending upon whether you're a private or public company, of course, but it just high level, they would care more about that one sheet of paper simply because it's detectable. When I speak with many senior executives and even experts in the field, such as yourself, one of the greatest frustrations is the lack of a unified national law. And it's not exactly a free-for-all, but it's pretty close to it (laughs) in terms of 50 jurisdictions, 50 potential sets of rules and regulations. Is that frustration still as great as I sense it is? Perhaps. I don't run into that nearly as much. I think that with the new privacy laws, that definitely comes into play. Since I'm not a lawyer, what I typically do is I typically say, here's some of the things that I've seen some other companies do. But if you need someone with full understanding of the law, you need to hire a lawyer. I would say most of the stuff that I work on, they're best practices. And they're best practices because they've been vetted time and again, and they really do meet pretty much all of the laws in the different states. So aside from some of the new privacy laws, I wouldn't say that it's been a huge deal. There are some new other compliance ones like CMMC, like if you sell to the federal government that people care about. But again, if you're just following good best practice, it'll generally meet any of those compliance standards. Do you find that same sort of knowledge or sophistication with companies that have overseas operations that are subject to GDPR? Yeah, it depends, right? Actually, the bigger the company is, from my experience, rightly or wrongly, they tend to address GDPR from a legal perspective, as in they just have the lawyers write up stuff so that they can do the least amount of work possible. And they can afford to do that because they have really high-powered lawyers. It's actually the smaller firms that are actually having more trouble meet GDPR because I think they're taking it a little bit more literally rather than just throwing a couple of lawyers at it, which is, seems to be the way that larger companies tend to do things. So I do think that's kind of interesting. But yeah, the more, if you go overseas, whether it's Europe and Asia is completely different, you're going to have completely different controls. And I think at that point, you need to have people who are specialists in those areas. Like I'm not an expert in international cybersecurity, and I will tell people that, but I do know, you know, at least some of the areas that you have to look at and how that might change your operations. For example, if you're going to be having a lot of intellectual property in some other countries that don't have as much protection, we'll say, for private intellectual property, then you do have to change the way that you do things and where you store things. So can I turn the focus just a little bit to Mm COVID-19? And how has COVID-19 changed your world? 
number one. And what are some, or maybe two or three of the top questions you're getting at this point in time and recording this in early December 2020 that are really related to the ongoing coronavirus health crisis? Yeah, so it changed a ton, I would say. But let me explain kind of how the landscape changed before I talk about how, say, business has changed. The landscape changed considerably because, you know, as you know, many of the companies shut down around the March timeframe. And when they did that, they were having less revenue come in. And since security is typically seen as a cost center and not a revenue center, a lot of those security things basically got shut off and a lot of security people got laid off as well, or at least furloughed. So you definitely had lower defenses. On top of that, the people's behaviors changed. So when you have a bunch of people working from home, that's totally different than having a bunch of people working from the same office where there's still some level of oversight, even if it's not overt. So when you have a bunch of people working from home, let me tell you, they do all sorts of stuff during the workday that are not necessarily related to work. And that increases the risk. And then you had law enforcement, which has had a lot of other challenges this year. So their focus, you know, is on other things, we'll just say. So from the hacker perspective, basically, it's a lot easier to steal. It's much less likely that you're going to get caught. You've got a lot of people basically clicking on things at home and doing even more risky behavior. It just seems like a fantastic opportunity to go in and, and steal. So your risk reward analysis as a hacker has gone up dramatically, while at the same time, businesses have been reducing the security and you've been seeing an increase in the hacking spending. And so from a business perspective, what happened is it went down pretty hard, I would say, during that period of time. But then I would say once the businesses started reopening, they started realizing that just turning off security tools isn't really a good idea. <laughs> and so at that point, it really ramped up a lot. And then so then uh, because they lost a lot of time and then security became much more expensive, actually, after that, because a lot of people were looking to get security all at the same time. Uh, and that's kind of just what happens in the market. So what are a couple of uh, the top questions you're getting at this point? Well, so if it's related to COVID, I would say the top question is working from home. You know, how do I make sure that, you know, I'm keeping safe, right? And so I think that is probably the number one, the number one thing to it. In some other cases, people want to improve their tools and this, that, and the other. But I think all of that's pretty normal and not necessarily driven by COVID. You're absolutely right in terms of the working from home issue that started with us back in March. But now I'm starting to get questions about what are the risks of returning to work? Are there security risks in employees returning to work? And are you beginning to get those types of questions? I'm not. I think that's very interesting. I would, If we had more time, I would love to learn a little bit more about how it is from your perspective as well. But I have not had those questions. I think most people are just assuming that it will either continue to be on working from home longer or maybe whenever it goes back to the office, that it would be basically the same as what it was before. But I do not know the answer to your question. Well, that even that answer leads me into my next question, which was you co-authored an article entitled Privacy Preserving Contact Tracing. And in this, you laid out a privacy by design system. And it struck me that that would be a way that employers could think about that issue in the return to work scenario. And I was wondering if you could maybe hit some of the highlights from that article and particularly around your privacy by design system. Sure. So my partner, Richard Abrich and I, we co-wrote this article, which was, as you mentioned, was a cover article for the ISSA journal um, this past month. 
And what we did was we took Dr. Ann Kevorkian's privacy principles. She has sort of seven foundational principles for privacy. And then we applied that to COVID contact tracing. So what Richard and I were looking at was there are, at this point, probably like 100 different contact tracing applications for phones. And we thought that, you know, looking at these, a lot of these, they'll ask for all sorts of permissions. Like it could be anything from like your flashlight, which doesn't make any sense why it would need to operate your flashlight, to photos, to SMS messages, to access to your contacts. And a lot of this stuff is like, we look at it, we're like, well, why would anyone do this unless the government forced them to install it, which in some cases they do. And so we decided to write an article about how if we were to build a privacy preserving contact tracing app, which by the way, Richard does have, you know, how we would go about doing that. And we designed it based off of the privacy design principles that Dr. Ann Kevorkian had put together to talk about how we can build anything really with privacy in mind. Gary, we're near the end of our time, but before we leave, I wanted to ask you about an offering that you've made on your website, which I found really interesting and certainly uh, very helpful for my audience, your audience, and probably any corporate audience as well. And that's security awareness training. I was wondering if you could describe that a little bit and tell people where they can go to take this free offering that you put out. Sure. So a lot of times, and as you probably know equally well as I do, companies are required to do a security awareness training for compliance purposes for their employees. But not only is it good for compliance, it's also just good general best practice. I think a lot of people don't necessarily you know, understand like all the different ways in which they could be compromised and have things stolen from them. And so what I've got is I've got a uh, website that anyone can go to, which is start-training.alfizo.com, A-L-F-I-Z-O.com. And if you go there, you can just sign up for a free account, and then you can put in all of your employees' email addresses in there, and then it'll email them to go watch whatever cybersecurity awareness videos that you can select which ones you want them to watch. And then it'll record when they've watched it. And then if you want them to take a couple quizzes to prove that they've watched it, you can do that as well. And then you can print out a report for your compliance, for your auditor whenever they come. Anyone can go there. It's just free compliance, it's free security awareness training, which is start-training.alfizo.com. Well, Gary, now we are at the end of our time. So maybe I could conclude by asking if listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics that you've touched upon in this podcast, where could they go? Yeah, uh, happy to connect with anybody who wants to have a further conversation. If they just go to my website, alfizo.com, A-L-F-I-Z-O.com, just go to the bottom, fill out the contact form, and uh, we'll get back to you. Well, Gary, this has been a fascinating podcast. We had uh, a wide variety of topics, and I might ask if uh, six, 12 months down the road, if we're in the same or similar situation, I might ask you to come back and talk to us about where we might be in the not-too-distant future. I'd be delighted to. Thank you for having me in the show, Tom. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.